Hello, I'm one of your hosts, Natalia Pinzon Jimenez, and welcome to Farmers Build Fire Resilience, a special podcast series brought to you by the Farmer Campus, the Community Alliance with Family Farms, and the Farmers Guild. In this series, you'll travel with us to the fields and back in order to hear stories from farmers, ranchers, and community members impacted by increasingly devastating wildfires in the Western United States. We hope these stories of loss, rebuilding, and resilience will help us face a future with fire together. Today, on episode five, we talk with community organizer Alma Bowen of Nuestra Comunidad. She shares with us the stories of farm workers during and after two massive fires in Sonoma County, California. My name is Alma Bowen. I am from Sonoma County. I am currently the executive director and founder of a nonprofit named Nuestra Comunidad. After almost 18 years as a 911 dispatcher, I formed Nuestra Comunidad out of the knowledge that I gained during the time as a dispatcher. Uh, very early on in my career, I recognized a huge disconnect between the 911 dispatch service and our community, and particularly, particularly our Spanish-speaking community. There was no outreach being done. Uh, people did not understand how 911 worked and what it was about. So early on in my career, I started doing uh, outreach into the community around the subject of the 911 system, educating the public about what to expect when they call, why we ask so many questions, the fact that their information was not shared with any other agencies. Um, and I felt like that would help bridge that gap and maybe during that disaster or emergency in their life when they called, uh, they wouldn't be fearful of the system and they actually would call in time um, when their loved one was truly having a medical emergency. So I did that for almost 18 years. Fast forward to October of 2017. I worked the night of the, of the Tubbs fire as a dispatcher and what I experienced that night changed my perspective completely. Uh, we had thousands of calls coming in uh, through the 911 system of our community members um, that were facing this horrific fire. And as a dispatcher, it was my first time in almost 18 years that I ever kept hearing myself. It was like a voice that was foreign to me, but it was my own voice that kept telling people, I'm sorry, nobody's coming for you, I'm sorry. We have nobody to send. I'm sorry, I will send, we will send you somebody as soon as I can. As soon as we can, we have nobody. So I realized that disasters don't discriminate. They, um, they are fair opportunity. They just, they hit our community on every level, affecting every social economic um, and status and, and, and all of that didn't exist during the disaster. However, what was evident to me that night was that on top of the normal vulnerabilities that that's, that our community faced um, in, in light of this disaster, our migrant field worker, Spanish speaking community were even more, more vulnerable. And uh, there were many uh, barriers that they had that other people did not have to have um, such as language and access to information and preparedness. And um, that night, there was one call that came through the center that, um, that just stuck with me afterwards. Uh, it was um, 
two vineyard workers that called in. A coworker of mine took that call. We do 911 because of the language access loss. The 911 service has to have interpreter lines 24 hours a day for any language that that um, is spoken by by anybody that's calling in. But that night was so crazy and hectic that the interpreting services were not being able to be reached. And I had a coworker that ran over to me and said, I have this gentleman on the phone and I can't understand what he's saying. I don't know where he is. Can you take the call? I think he's a Spanish speaker. So I um, switched uh, headsets with her. And um, what he was telling me is that he was completely surrounded in fire. It was he and another uh, gentleman that he was staying on the site of um, a work site out in the vineyards and he had no idea where he was. We weren't getting an accurate location on our map of where the call was getting in. And I had him run around the house and find mail. And we fi I finally had him spell out the address and numbers one by one in Spanish so I can figure out where he was. That stuck with me because not only was he surrounded in fire like many of our other callers, but he had no idea where he was. He often got dropped off at different sites to stay, kind of look over the property or for housing. He just didn't know where he was. And that just really unacceptable to me. After the dust settled and I looked back on everything, I realized that outreach into the community around disaster preparedness was where I needed to, to go and the work I needed to do and especially focusing on our Spanish-speaking community and vulnerable populations, also like seniors, and making sure that they have the best available information and training and preparedness um, and safety possible. So that's where we went, the direction we went. Now, fast forward to the Kincaid Fire of 2019. I played a completely different role as a nonprofit that works in um, disaster preparedness, outreach, and training. I never foresaw the role that we would play in res disaster response. However, that was exactly what happened. The night the Kincaid Fire barely started, uh, when they started talking about opening the first evacuation shelter, I was contacted to see if I could respond to that shelter and work as the director of communications in the front of the shelter to bring in Spanish, Spanish language interpreters and make sure that we had a presence there so that our Spanish speakers that were being evacuated to the shelter would have people there to help them communicate. Uh, the 2017 fires, one of the biggest uh, downfalls of the system was the lack of access to Spanish language uh, speakers to material and information and resources. So in 2019, we wanted that to be different. I responded to the shelter. It was an American Red Cross shelter. And at first, it was a little bit difficult to form that relationship as a nonprofit with the American Red Cross in a way that they would let or allow us to have that presence there and to work with them. So we had to modify some of their processes. And eventually, we actually formed a, a good system between that system. Normally, American Red Cross shelters are that, and they don't really allow for other organizations to come in and work with the people coming in, but they did in this thing, in this situation. And I believe it changed perhaps how evacuation centers will look. I'm prayerful that that's the case, that we have a new model that we can follow. So what happened though, as, as an organization and as an individual, I got to 
to see face to face and speak with some of the people that were being evacuated, some of our farmer workers, vineyard workers, families that had either lost their home or were evacuated and didn't know if they'd lost their home. And the stories were heartbreaking. So I remember uh, speaking to a woman, uh, Graciela. She was telling me a story about being at the shelter, not knowing if they were going to have a home to go back to or not. She went on to explain how critical this time was and how afraid uh, she was that even her husband losing work because the vineyard workers were not able to work not only during the fire but oftentimes after the fire for week or two at a time or even more in some situations for a family like her she explained even a few days loss of wages could be enough to render them out of a home and unable to play, pay their bills so she literally was in tears not even knowing if she had a home but already afraid of what her recovery might look like and not having the resources and that her husband was the the breadwinner and right now he wasn't working it was heartbreaking hearing her story and it was equally heartbreaking to hear the story of the vineyard workers, even though we were at the, in the shelter with thick smoke surrounding the entire area, fire in the area that they were working with, some of them were still having to go out and work. Some of the vineyard management companies were coming right into the center, bringing these people out, you know, bringing the workforce out to dangerous areas where, you know, their work was putting them in hazard, but for them, it was that choice to continue to work because they needed the money. One gentleman said, you know, I, I don't want to work. It's hard to breathe. He said, when I'm out there, my eyes are burning, but I can't miss the work. I feel like if I say no, when the vineyard management comes to tell me that we need to go, that I might lose my job. And so those stories were heartbreaking. Some of the people were afraid to come to the shelter and little by little they heard it was safe and that there were people there that could help them in their language. So we heard stories about people that instead of coming immediately to the shelter, they were going to, by the river or going to different locations and just trying to figure out what to do, hearing that the shelter was safe and that there were resources there to help them and then decided to come in. You know, everybody had different stories. A lot of them still didn't know about alerts and warnings. Um, a lot of them didn't realize that you actually have to sign up for them. One lady was upset because her daughter, um, she couldn't get a hold of her and they'd never talked about you know, having a plan and she just was beside herself, uh, not knowing where her daughter was or that she was safe. It was a different role for us, but it really emphasized that this work is important and it really highlighted some of the barriers for migrant and field workers. We had to coordinate resources. We were trying to uh, figure out, you know, what everybody need and also what was coming in and making sure to get it, you know, into the, the workers' hands that needed it. And, um, you know, we had various stories, but one of the, the um, field workers, um, you know, was having um, a medical condition and um, there was a little hesitancy in the shelter to give him the care he needed. And so I stepped in and I, um, you know, made sure to advocate for him and that he went to the hospital and got checked and that he got everything that he needed um, to make sure that, you know, he was taking care of the, the medical condition that he was having. And he was so thankful for that. 
Um, we also had another farm worker who needed, uh, you know, socks and clothing. He came with nothing. So we, we got him changes of clothes. We got him socks. We got him, you know, everything he needed, including hygiene kits. And we were feeding him. And, you know, what struck me over and over is that they were thanking us, even though we were a shelter, for taking care of them and for feeding them. And this gentleman walked up to me and said, you know, I've actually eaten better here than I normally eat. And it was uh, both rewarding and heartbreaking all at once to know that, you know, that people live in um, situations where even being at a shelter where food was being provided and it was warm was enough to make them feel grateful uh, for that food. Yeah, that, that is really heartbreaking. And, and like you said, rewarding. Um, can you speak on a little bit about why the farm workers were afraid to come to the shelter? Um, yes, back in 2017, um, the, the shelter, FEMA oversees the, the shelters during a disaster. And uh, if you go to a shelter and you're asking for any assistance or you're being housed there, there was FEMA paperwork that had to be filled out that had a paragraph in it that stated that your information could be could be shared with other government agencies, including ICE. And so uh, even though the, the FEMA representatives in the shelters made it a point to say that they had no intention of sharing the information with ICE because it was actually written in the document, um, people stopped would not go to the shelter. So in 2017, what we had was almost a secondary disaster situation where a lot of the field farm workers, Spanish speakers, migrants, um, immigrants, anybody who felt uh, afraid to be in a, uh, in a situation where their information might get to ICE ran for other locations instead. One of those was just, they, they went out to the Bodega Bay area near the ocean since what we were dealing with was a huge fire their instinct was to run towards the water but they all ran unprepared and so we had hundreds of people on beaches out in the bodega bay area with no resources many of which didn't even have jackets or um, any source of warmth and um, the bodega bay area in october and in general is a very cold region so we had hundreds of people out there with no food, uh, no warmth, um, no resources, and we had to figure out how to get help out to them. But because of their fear of that sharing of information, um, they, were, they just would not go to, to the local shelters. And um, we had a situation in 2017 that because we had organizations representing um, the community, that particular community sector right at the evacuation center, it was diffused rather quickly. But one of the other things that automatically happens is whenever there is a disaster evacuation center, um, and I learned this in at the Kincaid Fire Shelter in 2019, automatically the sheriff or law enforcement department sends out um, representatives from um, the sheriff's department and the parole department. So on the second day, the shelter was open in, um, during the Kincaid fire. I came into the shelter at six in the morning and there were um, fully dressed with, um, with, their, with their vests on and everything, almost looking like tactical fatigue officers 
surrounding the front door entrance to that shelter. When I initially came in, I thought maybe overnight there had been an incident that maybe uh, something bad had happened because of the police presence that I saw. So I began to inquire um, if something happened and I was told, no, you know, nothing happened. This is just normal. This is what happens. But what was starting to happen is that morning, additional families were starting to come towards the center that have now, you know, were still not able to return to their homes or had discovered their home was burnt, but they were hesitant to come into the shelter and they were in the parking lot or starting to leave our shelter because of it. So um, I called uh, one of my uh, partners there at the shelter um, another organization that was working, and I told her, the CEO of, of uh, Corazon Hillsburg, it's called the nonprofit, what was going on, and she made some calls. And what we ended up, we were not able to get them to leave altogether, um, but what it ended up being is that over their uniforms, they put regular shirts on, they, um, their, their guns were not so visible, and they agreed to not stand in the entry and um, impose such a menacing presence so that we could continue to, to bring people in that would be feel comfortable in the center. So there are components to shelters that naturally or by design exist that are very, um, um, I would say um, that put off a lot of our community members. And that still happened a bit in 19. Um, and it's an issue that we're trying to work out right now during non-disaster times where maybe there's a better way to do that so that um, people will feel safe to be there. Yeah, one of the blessings of, and, and obviously it's been so hard to have these two fires from 2017 and 2019, but one of the blessings of that is that you get to learn um, all of the components that are needed to really support the farm worker community and the migrant community and start to change those systems. And hopefully other communities around the state and around the West who are in danger of, of wildfires and also have a large migrant worker community can learn from those, those lessons that we're, we're finding on the ground here in Sonoma. Yes, that that is the hope, and and what's happening now is a lot of uh, other things are kind of becoming more vibrant. Our co-ed or community organizations, um, active in disasters, um, had been dormant, and because of the 2019, the second fire in two years, um, that organization now is up and running again and being revitalized. And a lot of the people that were part of the the response during the Kincaid fire, a lot of the organizations like myself, like, um, you know, Latinos Unidos, like Corazon, like California Human Development, all the, a lot of the, the Latino-based organizations have joined the COAD now so that our voices can be heard and our experiences that we've learned um, in the fires can become part of a new process of how we do things. That's great. That is just absolutely great. Um, for our listeners who might want to support the Latino farm worker community during fires, who are um, listening and want to hear of what they can do when there's a fire to support specifically that community, what what do you have for them? What could you ask? I think during disasters, the best way to support a lot of times is to get resources um, such as money. 
um, or gift cards uh, to the organizations involved with, you know, face to face on the ground with uh, with the population during that disaster. I know that, you know, for us and other organizations that were in the shelters or dealing directly with the, the impacted community members, um, it was difficult to obtain the resources uh, quickly that the people needed so um, that we can get them back in their homes. And then on top of the Kincaid fire, another layer that really impacted our community was that we had a PSPS or power safety uh, shut off the P from PG&E. So um, people were without electricity or gas um, uh, during, before, during, and, off, and for a prolonged time after. So they'd lost all their food that was in the refrigerator on top of everything. Some of them couldn't return to work even when, because of the fire, it was safe to do so um, because there was no electricity still. Um, so that affected, so a lot of people were looking for assistance in getting food back in their home or paying their rent if they had to miss a lot of work. So, you know, just supporting those organizations, um, even during non-disaster times so that they can have the bandwidth and that they can um, have the, the structures in place to respond um, in, a, in a more powerful way during a disaster. Those are all things that if you can do that beforehand and even during, uh, were, are, would be very helpful. We'll certainly provide links uh, to organizations that are supporting the Latino farm worker community, including your organization, Alma Nuestra Comunidad, for folks that want to make donations, as those donations are going directly to those communities in terms of resources and food and shelter and um, the things that they need that you're so aware of. So thank you for joining us. And I, I think that um, we have a lot to learn from your experience on the ground. And I'm really grateful for you sharing those stories as they're often the stories that are most veiled and unheard in these tragic moments. Thank you for the opportunity. It's, you know, I always look at it. It's really not so much my story, but their stories. And, um, you know, it propels me every day to get up and do uh, the work that I do and to continue to want to grow and learn um, so that, you know, I can better represent them and their needs. So thank you. Well, that's all for today's episode of Stories from the Fields. Thank you for listening and thank you, Alma Bowen, for joining us today and for sharing those stories. Join us again next week when we'll hear from more farmers and ranchers and community members. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you never miss an episode. Plus, if you haven't enrolled in our online course, Farmers Build Fire Resilience, stop by our website at farmercampus.com. We look forward to meeting you there. <laughs>